Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, a doctor specializing in integrative therapy talks about how the concepts of wellness relate to people with chronic medical conditions. There are five words to think about which are actually great life advice as well, right? So it's portion, it's proportion, it's preparation, it's timing, and it's consistency. A cardiac perfusion specialist and researcher discusses what we can potentially learn from studying Egyptian mummies. These mummies can tell us a lot about the cultural, medical, and social life in this era. And a rehabilitation psychologist goes over what student athletes and their parents need to know about concussion. You don't have to lose consciousness to have sustained a concussion. It is one of the criteria that helps diagnose it. Uh, makes it pretty clear that a concussion occurred. All that and a visit from The Healing Muse, coming up after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore health, science, and medicine with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. On this week's show, we'll explore what 5,000-year-old mummies can teach us. Then, a rehabilitation psychologist talks about concussion and other head injuries. But first, we see what wellness looks like for someone with a chronic health condition. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. If you're familiar with the fundamentals of wellness, which include nutrition, physical exercise, stress management, and spiritual wellness, you may wonder how these apply to someone who has a chronic health condition like heart disease, diabetes, or an autoimmune disorder. Here with me to explain is Dr. Koshal Nanavati. He's Upstate's Assistant Dean of Wellness, where he's also an Assistant Professor of Family Medicine and Medical Director of Integrative Therapy. Thank you for making time for HealthLink on Air, Dr. Nanavati. Oh, it's wonderful to be back, Amber. Well, I wonder if people with a chronic health condition have trouble thinking about wellness, you know, when they're when they're struggling with an underlying medical problem to begin with. So what have you seen among your patients? Well, I think there's a lot of things we think about, you know, people when they have chronic conditions, sometimes they're genetic or inherent in the family. And so people think, well, you know, there's no way I was going to escape it. So, you know, it is what it is. Uh, and they continue to go on with their lifestyle as it is. Uh, and sometimes that can be the problem because that's what's literally fed the condition, right? So we know that nutrition and physical exercise are two of the most important factors when it comes to uh, the leading chronic conditions, whether it be, you know, coronary artery disease or cardiovascular disease, cancer, uh, COPD or chronic lung disease, diabetes, obesity, which tends to feed a lot of the other conditions as well. And so there's a, a kind of a constant or con consistent stream uh, of behaviors that can lead to a lot of different chronic conditions over time. So even if you have this propensity in your family for a condition, some of your actions might um, lessen the effects or improve your ability to get things done, even though you have diabetes or heart disease or something. Absolutely. So, you know, we think, and, and some, uh, you know, kind of statisticians or epidemiologists talk about the fact that 40% uh, is genetic, 40% is what we do, and then 20% is happenstance. And these are approximate numbers. Uh, but, you know, the idea is that there are certain things that are genetic that, you know, show up at different stages of our life. But what we do can impact whether, it's, you know, the genes turn on or off, meaning the switch turns on or off. And that's where people have much more power much more ability to control or at least have a little bit of control over their destiny as to what shows up and what doesn't. And does that mean it's 100%? Absolutely not. But what it does do is brings that power and the ability to have that control, sense of ownership, back to ourselves versus kind of just throwing our hands up and saying, you know, I can't do anything about it, so I'm just going to go and have that fast food and, you know, eat the sad, as we call it, the standard American diet. And unfortunately, that tends to be the wrong decision that, that's made. So how do you talk to these patients about nutrition? Because, you know, teaching someone that what they eat may or may not impact, you know, the management of their disease, how, how do you have that conversation? 
Yeah, so there are, you know, first of all, as far as resources online that if people want to get more information, uh, since we'll be limited on some time. So the Harvard Healthy Eating Plate is a great resource to learn more about uh, nutrition. It's evidence-guided information that's a little different than the government's food plate, which is expert opinion. Uh, when I talk to patients about nutrition, what I help them understand is, you know, they're going to eat anyway, but the food they eat can either turn on or off a switch, but more importantly, it can actually help them to feel better overall. And so I start by the fundamentals with nutrition, which if nothing else, uh, the vegetables, right? And trying to get seven to nine servings of vegetables a day. Uh, just today, I gave a talk to a group of uh, students who, you know, got the number, but didn't know what the portion sizes were, right? So, you know, one measuring cup of raw vegetables is a portion or a serving size or a half a measuring cup of cooked is a serving size. So based on that, seven to nine servings is much more manageable throughout the day than if you just think seven to nine, oh my God, that's a lot, right? The other thing with nutrition that I tell, you know, people is there are five words to think about, which are actually great life advice as well, right? So it's portion, it's proportion, it's preparation, it's timing, and it's consistency, right? So think about portion sizes, right? You go to a restaurant and suddenly their portion size is smaller, and we as Americans feel gypped, right? Or I heard somebody last week tell me they gave me a European portion. I'm in America, right? And you sit there going, well, wait a minute, you know, the whole idea of portion control is not only balancing calories, but also helping with your digestion. Because again, food within 30 minutes starts to go into your intestines. And so if you have too much and it's not broken down well enough, now it's gonna go to the intestines and not be well prepared, right? Uh, and so you think about the portion size, you think about proportions, if half your plate is vegetables, generally you're going to end up in the right place as long as the other half isn't greasy and fried, right? I mean, so we have to pick and choose. Then you talk about preparation, again, greasy and fried, or even red meat would get vilified. The real issue there isn't really about the red meat, though that's supposed to be limited. How it's prepared, if it's cooked on high heat, if it's charred, or if it's well done, there's a chemical called dioxin that's formed that's been associated with colon, bladder, and even prostate cancer in men, right? So again, the preparation matters. Timing, right? Carbohydrates, fats, and proteins, there are no bad food groups, but there are bad foods within each group, right? And so when we know that, we can pick and choose better. And carbs, which are a great fuel, you know, can be front-loaded in the day, and then you burn them off, use them up, versus back-loading them with a heavy carb meal at nighttime, and then not having the ability to burn it off so it gets stored as starch, right? Uh, and consistency, right? So we know that cruciferous vegetables, when you get three servings or more, have actually shown some studies to reverse plaque in your arteries. But if you have it once a month, that's not gonna do much. And so the key is you wanna be consistent with those things as a part of your routine to start creating that shift and rebalance your nutritive components, your body. And all the stuff that I'm saying as an impact, which we're learning now, on the bacteria that are normal inside our gut lining. And when they get shifted, it's like the tobos don't work. Nutrients can't get in, toxins can't get out. When you start to eat healthier, you rebalance those gut bacteria, what we call the microbiome, and suddenly your toe boots are functioning healthily. Nutrients get in, toxins get out, the body's much healthier. So have you had patients with chronic health conditions who have really made a remarkable change in their eating habits? And are they able to come back and tell you that they notice a difference? So I'll give you one of the most stark examples. Uh, I was referred a patient uh, from a local family physician who uh, had, you know, autoimmune arthritis. You know, it was pretty severe. She was debilitated to the point of being in a wheelchair. And over a span of about 9 to 12 months, we were able to work with her nutrition. Uh, specifically, she was eating very consistent with kind of a standard American diet, kind of a meat and potatoes, drinking, you know, a few sodas a day, uh, that type of a thing. And over the span of those nine months, she went from being in a wheelchair to being a walker uh, or using a walker to a cane uh, to actually being able to walk in without any assistive device. And really what she did was she embraced uh, the Mediterranean diet approach. Uh, and so changed up what she was eating, got rid of the inflammatory foods, uh, you know, started to eat, you know, the beans and lentils and legumes, which, by the way, in the Mediterranean diet, 
even though the fish and wine tasted great, the legumes gave the best benefit for overall morbidity, which is sickness, and mortality or death from all causes. So she started to eat this way, uh, got rid of the soda, started to drink more water, started to eat more vegetables, you know, salads and greens and cruciferous vegetables. And the impact, and, you know, it wasn't pills, it was food. Uh, and that really made the impact so that now she pretty much sees a doctor, you know, once or twice a year versus having to go in monthly because she was in pain. And more importantly, she's happier. Her quality of life is better. And this is somebody who took the power back, who got the power back with the right information, right? And then acting on it consistently, right? You're listening to Upstate's Health Link on Air. This is your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with Dr. Koshal Nanavati about how the core four tenets of wellness apply to patients with chronic health conditions. We've covered nutrition, so now I'd like to talk to you about exercise. Is it safe for someone with heart disease or diabetes to exercise? So exercise is something that what we talk about is a relative to the person. You asked the question about heart disease specifically and even diabetes. Well, we'd like to make sure if somebody has heart disease that they should at least have a, a good or decent heart evaluation done uh, so that they get clearance from their healthcare providers to be able to work out because oftentimes people will do things on their own. And things like the weekend warrior phenomena where people overload and overboard, go overboard can put a lot of stress on somebody's body when they're not conditioned for it. So having a program, right, or working with a trainer or your healthcare provider to come up with a program that gradually increases your activity. Because again, remember, this is not a one-time, one-time fix. This is a lifelong change that you want to sustain. It's a habit you want to form. And with exercise, a nice pearl is that people who do 10 minutes a day are more likely to form a habit than people who do 30 minutes three times a week. So again, that word consistency out of the things I was talking about, right? Portion, proportion, preparation, all those things, uh, timing, uh, these are all very important with exercise. So, one, it's valuable. Two, the current guidelines say that getting 300 minutes of moderate intense activity per week. Uh, so, moderate intense means going hard enough that you can speak in small sentences, but not so that you're going to you know, pass out or have a long-winded conversation. Uh, 300 minutes of uh, aerobic activity plus one or two sessions of uh, weight-based training are what are recommended, right? Uh, the WHO has data that showed that people that got up to seven hours, so that would be 420 minutes of moderate intense activity, compared to people who got less than 30 minutes a week, the people that got to seven hours had a 40% lower chance of premature death from all causes, right? There's no pill that gives you those odds, right? Uh, and when you think about those cruciferous vegetables and eating three a day, three servings, reversing plaque and arteries, which again, pills don't do, right there, you've got two major tools that can actually reverse chronic disease that a person can do on their own versus needing a prescription for, right? This is the power we want people to have with good information. Uh, unfortunately, uh, routines uh, sometimes get in the way uh, or what we believe to be our subcultures or, you know, this is our tradition. We always have pizza on Friday night, you know, uh, wings on Thursday nights, or people have their routines, or, you know, play darts on Tuesday nights, and then we have wings and beer, or go bowling, and then, of course, we're going to have a couple of drinks. And the reality is, you know, the working out part is fine. Softball leagues that afterwards go to the bar, right? All those kinds of things. Uh, and again, you know, I'm not casting stones on anybody. I've lived all of those lives. But at the same time, when we know better, we can do better. And if we have health conditions specifically, now we're actually being more targeted our lifestyle as a therapeutic intervention of itself versus, oh, that's just my lifestyle and now I need pills, right? Now, thinking about consistency, some of the autoimmune diseases wax and wane. Is it okay for someone not to push themselves to exercise if they're having an off day? So that phrase moderation is key, right, uh, is really important. When it comes to autoimmune conditions, uh, especially when you think about conditions like rheumatoid arthritis, lupus, et cetera, where there are multiple factors that can cause a flare, right? What we want to try to understand when somebody has a flare or is not feeling well is can we find the trigger in that instance itself, right? So was it that they went to a holiday party, right, and then ate stuff that they don't normally eat, and that triggered inflammation, right? 
then we know that it's going to take a little bit of time to get out of their system and they'll be fine. Uh, and when people are flared up, to overexert can actually be uh, traumatic. Uh, and so they have to be very careful. What I will say is that people that have autoimmune conditions, if they have inflammation of joints, stiffness, you know, that sort of thing, uh, therapeutic pools are actually very nice. Uh, usually 98 degrees and you don't have to go swimming even. You can just be in it and do some walking and that sort of thing. So you don't have to do sign up for the water aerobics class, but you can be in a part of the pool where you can just walk in it. And that water and the warmth and the flow are actually wonderful and can be very beneficial. What advice can you offer about stress management? Stress management, the fundamental is own what you can do something about, right? It sounds so simple to say, but the reality is we all have stress, right? And when you stress about a stress, you got two problems. When you take care of a stress, you got no problems, right? So if one plus one is two, one minus one is zero, the ones are the same, your stressors, but how you operate with them helps to define your outcome. I had one lady who came in with so much stress. I said, write it down for me. And she came back with eight pages in a 15 minute, you know, primary care visit. And I thought, wow. Uh, so I said, do me a favor, make two columns, you know, write down one column, things I can do something about the second column, things I can't control. And when she came back, one page was hers to own. The other seven pages were stresses in her life but things she couldn't do something about directly, right? So uh, those are the things that go on the shelf, right? And basically every time your mind goes there for the same time and energy, you can come back to your action item list, take one thing, make a plan, get it done, then check it off. And every night think about how much you got done, right? To know that you're actively living your life versus feeling stuck with the things that you can't really control. Yeah, that's interesting. It does sound simple but it sounds like it could work as well. Now, before we wrap up, I wanna ask you how spiritual wellness would be helpful to someone with a chronic health condition, particularly if they're not a religious person. So I think spirituality and religion are definitely two things. I mean, that's kind of known as well, right? Uh, and so we think about spiritual wellness as this idea of contentment and peace. Uh, and that's a very personal de definition for everybody. So I can't tell you what contentment and peace are for you at this stage in your life, but you can reflect on it and think about that, right? And that actually ties into our feeling of well-being, right? So uh, what I tell people is, you know, think about five-year plans and contentment and peace, but also stages in life. You know, when you're single versus in couplehood versus having younger children or older or when you're a teenager, at all those stages, contentment and peace are different. So taking the time to reflect on what that means is the first step to actually being able to achieve it. Because if you don't know, if you get in the car and start driving without direction, you're just driving, right? But the minute you have an endpoint in mind, you are contentment and peace. Now you can map out the path. And even if there are detours and roadblocks and construction, the point is you'll get there because you know where you're going, right? And this is the same way. And I'll tell you that this idea of well-being, which ties into spiritual wellness, uh, there are actually some evidence-guided principles, and they really focus on five things. One is connecting, right? Strengthening our relationships. Uh, we know that one of the keys to sustained happiness is meaningful relationships, right? The second is being active. As we talked about, physical activity improves our mental, emotional, spiritual health uh, and our well-being, right? Giving, carrying out acts of kindness, right? If somebody is not feeling well, but they aim to do something nice for somebody else, at the end, both of them feel better, right? Uh, and so that's an easy way to think about that. Uh, taking notice, paying attention, actually paying attention. So when we're focused on ourselves, we're thinking about, you know, woe is me. Uh, the minute you pay attention to other people, you start to recognize them for who they are, the journey that they're undertaking, what they're going through. Now we have a different awareness of the world around us and our connection with them, right? And then the last piece is to keep learning, right? Uh, you know, knowledge isn't constant, right? And wisdom is really knowing when to use the knowledge. But if we keep refining the knowledge we have, we also start to understand when to apply it. And that really changes and transforms our living experience as well. Well, I thank you once again for making time for HealthLink on Air, Dr. Nanavati. My pleasure every time. My guest has been Upstate's Assistant Dean of Wellness and Medical Director of Integrative Therapy, Dr. Koshal Nanavati. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's HealthLink on Air. What pathogens have been found in Egyptian mummies? Next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air.
From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. The coronavirus is one of many viruses that some researchers believe have a history that can be documented in the ancient Egyptians. My guest today is Dr. Hani Ayesh. He's an assistant professor of cardiovascular perfusion and surgery and neurology, and he's also an assistant dean for interprofessional research at Upstate. I appreciate you taking time away from your day to talk with me, Dr. Ayesh. Thank you very much, Amber. It's my honor. You were involved in a study that was recently published in one of the Lancet Medical Journals about what Egyptian mummies might be able to teach us. Can you tell us about it? Yes, um, this paper about uh, that we found many, uh, many medical problems happen in the old ancient mummies. And we discovered a lot of bacteria and viruses uh, there. And even there is a lot of ova for schistosomiasis in this, uh, in these mummies. So we know that the DNA, once we discover the DNA of these viruses or bacteria or others, we can, these mummies can tell us a lot about the cultural, medical, and social life in this era. What's important for us is what we are dealing with this uncertainty due to COVID-19 virus. And uh, we don't know especially, especially how, how this virus or, uh, originated, how it's mutated, what what makes these viruses different than other viruses in, in diagnosis, complication, even post-complication, post COVID-19. This is a lot of uncertainty in this virus. Make, made us thinking about what's going on, What how can these old Egyptian mummies can tell us, like they told us about hepatitis B and tuberculosis before. So it's, especially we have very good source of these mummies, they, because there is mummies of, of the human and there is mummies also for the pets and other animals. So, and they, if we found, and, and you know that we discovered coronaviruses in many animals, like, uh, like cats, like dogs, and they have a lot of mummies there included this and they found also 50 mummies for for the for the corona for the pets and the uh, in many places in egypt so what we think that if we know the dna and the mutation happen in this virus it can detect a lot for the future and can also help us to 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 detect the origin of this virus if we found this virus in in the egyptian mummies it's highly transmission or not? What the factor affecting this transmission? If they wrote anything on the wall regarding this one, if there is because this virus, uh, the, the, the even the name of this virus uh, is uh, SARS, I don't think it's respiratory virus. It's mostly vascular. It's a respiratory with vasculites. And they, the Egyptian mummies and the Egyptian ancient Egyptian describe that there is some vascular uh, issue on this uh, moment and, and, and their health. What makes the vascular issue? Maybe it's RNA viruses like coronavirus affect their 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 vessels to cause clots and other, everything like this. What we discovered like atherosclerosis and other important manifestation. This moments there is a lot of things made us thinking to investigate why we don't investigate this mummies to know more about the origin of this virus. Maybe we will discover this virus and the origin of this virus, the mutation, what we can learn from the expected treatment and how they, if, if they have this virus, how they treat it, how they deal with these viruses. Maybe we'll have a lot of lessons from those people in the ancient, uh, in the ancient Egyptian. Well, let me ask you something really basic because I'm a little confused. I mean, the mummies are from 5,000 years ago. So if you find, like you mentioned, hepatitis or tuberculosis or atherosclerosis even, if you find those in a mummy, do they look the same as they would look in a person from present day or have they changed in some way? No, it's not. Usually it's not activated because, the, but we will discover the DNA from them. So we will discover the remnant of them. Some mummies was in cold weather. So we can, we can, we can discover these viruses or the part of these viruses in a very good way, but some of them in hot weather and, uh, and some of the human interaction and in these mummies can destroy the mummies. So we can detect some destroyed uh, part of this uh, viruses or bacteria. 
but usually we will want to discover that even any part of them, we discovered that there, there was a virus or bacteria there. Well, let me ask you what makes mummies in the first place, what makes them good historical specimens? Because I understand there's several steps for the mummification process. Can you walk us through what those are and why it makes a mummy a good um, scientific uh, specimen? Yes, the mummies passes many steps, takes about 70 days uh, due to mummification, about 40 days. They put it, number one, they dry these mummies, they put it in salt, about 40 days, and they put it in the table, tilting table, because they want to dry all the fluids inside the mummies. Then once they dried, they remove the brain and the, remove the intestinal or the, the, the intestinal and the kidney from the mummies. They remove the brain from the nose, and they they open laparotomy and they they open they remove all the intestinal and the all organs from the abdomen and chest. They then they will dry it again. They put it in salt and then we, they return two organs, mostly one organ in the and the on this mum is the heart because they think that if the heart is heavy, uh, this this man or this woman um, did a lot of sin in their life. If the heart is thin. They are good hearts, so they keep the hearts inside the body because they believe that they will go to other life. So this is one of the the sample. They keep the skin. Then after they they dry it and they put uh, and they put it in salt. They keep some. They put a lot of stuff like oil and like a lot of stuff inside the mummies, and then they wrap it um, with many wraps took a lot of wraps about uh, then after this they keep it so the skin will be preserved and also the their tissue inside will be preserved the bone inside that will be preserved and also this is what helped the scientists when they are doing CTs they discovered there's a lot of TB on the bone what we call Pott's disease they discovered a lot of bacteria affecting the bones they discovered that there is clots and uh, there is a lot of discovery when they apply the new technology on diagnosis of the disease happen. So, and we cannot find the specimen for 5,000 years, except those people. But the ethics to discover or to open them, because even the, 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 the package of the, of the, of the mummies, they keep it in a very far, far away from the Nile because they don't want wet, wet uh, soil. And then they can, and away from the human being, because they don't want uh, the, the, the people to go inside and to open this uh, tapu. So there is a lot of uh, things make this specimen is great. And it's a very nice that we will see the origin of many viruses and bacteria on this stuff. So I imagine the researchers from today, uh, are they wearing protective gear when they're working on examining the remains of the mummies? Yes, they, they, they usually wear overprotective gears because, because, you know, we don't know exactly if the, this viruses can be activated or not, but the people who discovered the TB in England, they, nobody infected with the TB, tuberculosis. But we don't know exactly if these viruses will be activated or not, but usually they are wearing overprotective gears for going inside these places uh, and also when they go inside the mums. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Dr. Hani Ayash. He's an assistant professor of cardiovascular perfusion and neurology at Upstate, and we're talking about some research he's done about what Egyptian mummies can teach us possibly about coronaviruses. Now, you mentioned already um, atherosclerosis, which can lead to heart disease, um, and some other viruses and bacteria that have been found in Egyptian mummies. Um, my question is, do, do these viruses continue living in tissue that is dead, or are you just finding remnants of these viruses and bacteria? And mostly these viruses, when it lives 5,000 years, mostly it will not be available, but the, the, the DNA is still there. Uh, it's activated or not. And there is, they keep the, the mummies uh, empty of, of oxygen because, you know, if, if these bacteria or viruses uh, in, in, became alive, it will decay the mummies. So most of them mostly are dormant. So I they see. are not. 
Yes, they're not working, but we don't know exactly if, they, as I told you, if it's activated or not. I don't think that it will be activated, but we there is if there is something there, uh, nobody, uh, as I told you, uh, investigate this in a, in depth to know what's going on. What about flu viruses? Do you think ancient Egyptians got sick with influenza? There is a lot of uh, studies now in England and other countries, uh, uh, especially they have mummies in there. They are investigating about these flu viruses. We cannot exclude any virus, uh, but as I told you, it's some according to the sample uh, and the tissue we have and the specimen we are having, uh, what we can find by CT, it will be great. Flu viruses, it will affect the bone. It's very... I don't think that they can discover it, but from the tissue, they are working in this uh, researches now in England and in some other countries, but there is no confirmation that they found flu viruses. Well, there's um, many coronaviruses, including the one that's responsible for the present global pandemic. Do you think it was present in Egyptians from 5,000 years ago, this same SARS-CoV-2 that we're dealing with today? We don't know exactly if, because, you know, as you know, that there is four types of coronavirus, the, this PETA, uh, PETA type of what's called coronavirus, COVID-19, uh, one of the most novel of them, because they discovered that the pets and the graves of Egyptians, they, and they have the corona, the MRSA, which is uh, discovered in 2013, 2012 and 2013, and they discovered that the pet has, the pets has this virus. But we don't know exactly this coronavirus, this COVID-19 is there or not, but we must to investigate, as I told you. And we, if we will find something like this, we will know that uh, we must to link this uh, virus with other uh, animals and other uh, factors according to the, if the coronavirus is available, if we found it is available locally, and we must discuss the environmental factor like humidity like the temperature, like a lot of stuff can, 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 can affect the transmission of these viruses. And also, you know that uh, if, if it's isolated cases uh, locally, it, that maybe we, we must know the, uh, what we call the molecular uh, clock of this virus to understand how long it will begin, how long, uh, how long it's working. This is very important for us. Well, if you were to find coronaviruses in the human mummies, what sorts of things might you be able to tell us about SARS-CoV-2 and the variants that we're dealing with today? What do you think you might be able to learn? Uh, we have a lot of lessons from them. Number one, we discovered the source of the, these viruses. Because as you know, there is a lot of mutation in these viruses every now and then. And we, once we know the genome or what's going on in the beginning and the mutations, we can discover what the expected mutation can happen in the future. Number two, the treatment. We, they can write something. They wrote a lot about pets on the walls of their temples. And there is about 50 pets. They found it as a mummies in other uh, places. We can find if there is link between all of them and if there is any treatment, the old Egyptian uh, people discover it to deal with this COVID-19, we can learn a lot. Also, number three, about the transmission, how it transmits, as I told you, if, if it's highly transmissible and they did something for, for this stuff, we can, we can learn. Number uh, five, for the future, uh, dealing with any viruses also, uh, as you know, the, the, the this molecular uh, uh, clock and this uh, metagenomic analysis will give us a lot of information about uh, what the disease does. Maybe other other complication happen in, in ancient people. Maybe there is other mutations uh, happen with them. So we can expect what's going on and also the relationship between human and and uh, and and animals. It, this this science is very important and to tell us how to decrease the next pandemic if the they found that they, they like like what happened in Denmark. Uh, they they have a lot of animals affected with new mutation of of COVID nineteen, and they they 
they killed all of, of the animals, the mink, the, this is a mink animal, they killed all of them and then uh, it removed, uh, it decreased the infectivity of these virus. So there is a lot of lessons from the origin, from the diagnosis, from the complication, from the treatment. We can found it in this old uh, history from the Egyptian mummies. Paleogenetics, I guess, is what this is called. Does that tie into your specialization of cardiovascular perfusion? No, I'm a, I'm I'm originally cardiologist, uh, and I have also I'm working also I work in my life and as a cardiologist most of my life, and also I practice as a family medicine also. So I I have dual uh, specialty, uh, and I work in mechanical ventilation here and research on 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 critical care. And I work in cardiovascular perfusion. I'm, I'm teaching for them a lot of courses related to cardiology and the basic science, basic science like cardiac physiology, cardiac pathology, and cardiac pharmacology, select topic of this stuff. But you, I am originally a cardiologist. I practice cardiology most of my life. And you're from Egypt. I am from Egypt originally. We love our history. <laughs> the best is very important to investigate our past because maybe it, we will discover something all the world will be benefiting. Well, it's fascinating. And once again, I want to thank you for taking time for this interview. My guest has been Dr. Hani Ayesh, an assistant professor of cardiovascular perfusion and surgery and neurology at Upstate. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's HealthLink on Air. Next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, an update on concussion care. Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. School sports are back in session, so I want to talk about how best to protect student athletes from concussion. Joining me today is Dr. Debbie Spinks. She's an assistant professor of physical medicine and rehabilitation and a rehabilitation psychologist. Thank you for making time for this interview, Dr. Spinks. My pleasure. Is concussion a concern only in the contact sports like football and soccer, or have you seen kids who got head injuries playing other sports or activities? Oh, we see concussions in a variety of sports, um, some that people don't consider very contact to begin with. So obviously hockey, football, um, but basketball, volleyball, cheerleading is a big one, um, even just Falls, you know, kids goofing around with each other, you know, piggyback riding, things like that. So it, any form, sports and non-sports. Let's go over um, the most common symptoms of a concussion. How would someone know or how would a parent know that their child might have a concussion? Uh, a few physical symptoms are usually the first ones kids are aware of, headache being the number one most obvious symptom. Um, followed by maybe some dizziness, nausea with the headache, uh, blurry vision, double vision, uh, even briefly after an injury, um, light sensitivity to the sunlight or the, the, the other lights at school, noise sensitivity, cafeterias, things like that bothering them more often, and just things in their daily life bothering them more often, like TV and computer screens, um, the noise with their families at home. Does the person need to have lost consciousness when they fell or had their injury? Is that um, a, a no. predictor? No? No, uh, you don't have to lose consciousness to have sustained a concussion. It is one of the criteria that helps diagnose it. Uh, makes it pretty clear that a concussion occurred if you lost consciousness. Um, but if you have an altered mental status, confusion, you're dazed, um, or can't remember uh, moments, seconds, or minutes around your injury, that can also clarify that the brain was injured enough that it likely sustained concussion. So if you have a student athlete who's got these symptoms, what do you advise parents to do? Should they, do they need to go to the hospital or can they keep them at home? Um, do they, do you want them to sleep it off or do they need to keep them awake? I mean, what sorts of practical advice do you have? Well, it's good to watch the student um, 
just to see how they're feeling. If, if symptoms are really severe, a really bad headache, or they're vomiting nonstop or something like that, it's a little more unusual, but certainly get direct medical attention, urgent care, or an ER. Many times, though, keeping an eye on the child and making contact with the primary care physician or pediatrician for additional guidance and evaluation can direct the next steps in, in care if needed. Is there a test to confirm whether it's a concussion? There's no actual test at this time. There is research people have have heard and there might be buzz about like a blood test. Um, but that's that's still the early stages and nothing like that exists at this point. And there's no brain imaging that confirms concussion or not. Uh, the, the brain imaging technology we have um, could rule out bigger issues, but it's not usually helpful in diagnosing a concussion at this point. Is there a treatment for a concussion or will symptoms just go away on their own? For many, in fact, the majority of concussions may have symptom resolution on their own in days to weeks. Um, at times, uh, there's a large minority that might have some persisting symptoms that weeks in might benefit from a nudge in the right direction. And those those treatments include physical therapy or occupational therapy, um, rest, avoiding stimulation, cutting back on school and, and physical activity can usually help in the early days and weeks for the symptoms to resolve on their own as well. So for most days to weeks is probably all it will take, but have you seen people with permanent damage from concussion? I guess I like to, to think of it more as, as longer lasting versus permanent symptoms because we don't really know after a certain time how, you know, what happens after we see them, but there, there can be longer lasting symptoms after concussion for a variety of reasons, depending on their prior health history, prior history of concussions. Um, if they have sustained other concussions, uh, that's a risk factor for longer lasting symptoms uh, to some degree. Well, locally, we've seen a case recently where a football player died from a head injury, but I read in news coverage that it wasn't a single blow. So I was a little confused. Are head injuries sometimes cumulative? Yes, they they can be. Um, you can see that, especially if the injuries are close together. Uh, they maybe don't have a chance to resolve fully before the next concussion, then those residual symptoms carry over into the newer symptoms, which can be more severe, um, may last longer, uh, take a longer recovery period. Um, so that can that is a risk with concussions, which is, is why we advocate for treating a single concussion fully till symptoms resolve before clearing them to return to sports and activities that put them at risk for yet another concussion so close. This is Upstate's Health Link on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith. I'm talking with Dr. Debbie Spinks. She's an assistant professor of physical medicine and rehabilitation at Upstate, and we're talking about concussions. So let's talk a little about prevention. Um, football players, for instance, wear helmets, but how protective are those? Well, as, as you can see, you can still get a concussion even though you're wearing a helmet. So they, they aren't fully preventative 100%, but they can limit or reduce the impact from uh, the, the tackling um, and the, the risk of perhaps having a concussion from a, a hit that otherwise would have certainly caused a concussion had the helmet not been on. Um, so it, it does provide some, some benefit and some prevention, but it's not foolproof. Do players in other sports need to consider headgear? I mean, we hear about the helmets in football and, and I think lacrosse also, right? Or field hockey? Are, yeah. are other sports needing head protection, do you think? Uh, that's, a, that's a hard question in terms of, of needing or would it benefit? Um, I think some players are choosing to wear like the full 90 in soccer is a big one that we get asked about, um, which is a band around the, the forehead and the, and the head. Um, I think it, it sometimes provides a sense of some protection, some impact absorption for, for students if they've had a concussion and 
they want to protect themselves or add that extra layer, so to speak. Um, but I think we're still looking into the benefits of, of, you know, should there be helmets in some of these other sports? Is the risk for concussion high enough to warrant investigating this? So it's still, still in the works. What about modifying games to reduce the risk of head injuries? Have you seen that happening in certain sports? I, mean, I think some of the games have tried to modify their their maybe the way they tackle um, or or how um, how they check in hockey. Not being an athlete myself, I don't know all all of the terminology and training and coaching, but I, I think I think the coaches and trainers are so much more educated on concussion and are are trying to identify if there's ways to coach their athletes to tackle in a, in a way maybe that doesn't involve head to head contact, for example, in in football and using more um, the stronger parts of your upper body versus head and neck. Because I wonder if concussions are more of a risk for the young athlete versus the professionals. Um, you know, as the young athletes are developing, are they more at risk than the professionals that are, you know, doing this every day? I don't uh, don't know how young you know you're thinking by that, but um, yeah, it's there's the risk. I think it's there regardless of how young or old you are. There's less force involved with the younger kids anyway uh, versus, you know, once you get to be maybe 12, 13 and um, high school and college age. So there's different factors, um, different mechanical factors and speeds and acceleration, deceleration forces to consider at younger ages. You just don't get that much of a force uh, per se, but but I know it's it's still, again, something we're looking at the research is looking at in terms of are there risks we need to re, you know be rethinking what ages um, are appropriate for some of these contact sports how concerned should parents of student athletes be about the risk of cte that chronic traumatic encephalopathy is that something that you ever see in young people if we're talking student athletes we would say no um, it's, it's definitely something that's more of a, a, a progressive disease and it is rare to begin with. Um, it doesn't, I, I think in the youngest folks, uh, that I've read about or heard about with CTE, it may be in the thirties, it's been confirmed in some younger adults. Um, but again, it can't be tested either until, until you die. So it's hard to, to really know if on what age it may have affected some of those other individuals. But if you've got a child who has repeated head injuries, um, I mean, would that be a concern that, you know, in their future, they may end up having some issues? Yeah, again, with the risk of it really, from what we know, being pretty low, um, especially from sports as a child in particular, I don't think there's any uh, significant concern, concern parents need to have about that as most kids do recover from concussions fully and completely. And with the education we have, we are certainly keeping kids away from risks of re-injury at this point until they are more fully healed. Whereas I think that wasn't happening in the decades past with the professional athletes that were studied for the CTE research. So it's really hard to generalize um, to current concussion practices and risks as well. So that's still yet to be discovered. Let me ask you a little more about CTE. Do, do we know for sure what causes it or do we know why some players who have repeated head injuries develop CTE and some of them don't? Do we even understand? Well, I know the research has found now that we can diagnose it after death um, through brain autopsies. There's a, a certain tau protein that develops and kind of um, forms like a plaque in the brain, which leads to these symptoms. Um, so we know the elements that cause CTE. Um, but that's like after the fact, there's, there's not a yeah. test ahead of time to tell you, right? Unfortunately, it's about treating the symptoms um, and each person's brain's different. 
and each person's response to concussion is different. So that's probably going to factor into why some athletes may develop CTE in the future, while many don't. You know, it'd be a small portion that we would expect may develop it if there perhaps is a repeated history of concussions over a longer period. Well, I appreciate you taking time to talk to us about head injuries and CTE. My guest has been rehabilitation psychologist Debbie Spinks. She's an assistant professor of physical medicine and rehabilitation at Upstate. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's HealthLink on Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Nicholas Bellachico is in his fourth year of medical school and has already published a book of poetry, Pouring Echoes. He sent us a poem, Writing on the Wall. It bears witness to a physician's diagnostic analytics still allowing room for empathy and care. Writing on the Wall. A slight shuffling gait, moderate cogwheel, slowness in speech, minimal stooped posture. I see it. It is written like sloppy graffiti. You ask me to interpret. It's like reading a telegram to a soldier's wife. I pause and give you a second more of a life without a diagnosis. This has been Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Next week on HealthLink on Air, what's important to know about multiple sclerosis? To hear more consumer health podcasts, visit our website at healthlinkonair.org or do a podcast search for the phrase HealthLink on Air. Upstate's HealthLink on Air is produced by Jim Howe with sound engineering by Stephen Shaw. This is your host, Amber Smith, Thanking you for listening.